I'm reading a considerable portion of uh, instructions from Scripture today, and I'm not really going to exegete them, but I'm not reading them without cause. I really want you to feel the weight of them as you stand listening, because there are some things that you cannot simply be told, even though I will tell you at some point in a moment, um, that some things really have to be felt. And hearing God's word does things that hearing my words cannot. So, a reading from Exodus 25, 2 Samuel 6, and 1 Chronicles 28. These are God's words. And Yahweh spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the sons of Israel, that they may take for me an offering. Of every man whose heart maketh him willing, ye shall take my offering. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show thee, the pattern of the tabernacle, and the pattern of all the furniture thereof, even so shall ye make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it, and shalt make upon it a crown of gold around about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four feet thereof. And two rings shall be on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. And thou shalt make staves of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings on the sides of the ark, wherewith to bear the ark. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, two cubits and a half shall be the height thereof, the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubs of gold, a beaten work shalt thou make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub at the one end, and one cherub at the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubs on the two ends thereof. And the cherubs shall spread out their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall be the faces of the cherubs. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, and will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubs which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto the sons of Israel. Second Samuel 6. David again gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Baal Yehuda to bring up from thence the ark of God, which is called by the name, even the name of Yahweh of hosts, that sitteth above the cherubs. And they, they set the ark of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was in the hill, with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before Yahweh with songs and with harps and with lyres and with tambourines and with castanets and with cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, and he died by the ark of God. 
And David was displeased because Yahweh had broken forth upon Uzzah, and he called that place Peretz Uzzah unto this day. Peretz means burst forth. And David was afraid of Yahweh that day, and he said, How shall the ark of Yahweh come unto me? So David would not remove the ark of Yahweh unto him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of Yahweh remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And Yahweh blessed Obed-Edom and all his house. Finally, First Chronicles 28. Then David gave to Solomon his son the pattern of the porch of the temple, and of the houses thereof, and of the treasuries thereof, and of the upper rooms thereof, and of the inner chambers thereof, and of the place of the mercy seat, and the pattern of all that he had by the Spirit for the courts of the house of Yahweh, and for all the chambers round about, for the treasuries of the house of God, and for the treasuries of the dedicated things. Also for the courses of the priests and the Levites, and for all the work of the service of the house of Yahweh, and for all the vessels of the service in the house of Yahweh, of gold by weight for the vessels of gold, for all vessels of every kind of service, of silver for all the vessels of silver by weight, for all vessels of every kind of service, by weight also for the lampstands of gold, and for the lamps thereof, of gold by weight for every lampstand, and for the lamps thereof, and for the lampstands of silver, silver by weight for every lampstand, and for the lamps thereof, according to the use of every lampstand, and the gold by weight for the tables of showbread, for every table, and silver for the tables of silver, and the flesh hooks, and the basins, and the cups of pure gold, and for the golden bowls by weight for every bowl, and for the silver bowls by weight for every bowl, and for the altar of incense, refined gold by weight, and gold for the pattern of the chariot, even the cherubs that spread out their wings and covered the ark of the covenant of Yahweh. All this, said David, have I been made to understand in writing from the hand of Yahweh, even all the works of this pattern. And David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and of good courage, and do, do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for Yahweh God, even my God, is with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee, until all the work for the service of the house of Yahweh be finished. These are God's words. You may be seated. We have reached the point in our sermon series on the church where we must turn our attention to the very center of our existence as a congregation. We have seen what scripture reveals to us about our nature, about what makes a church a church, about how we are a body, about how our governance works, what our sphere of authority is, and finally, what the essential ingredients are that mark us out as a legitimate part of the church universal. We have seen the necessity of gathering together, and how doing this is in order to hold fast to the teaching of Scripture and to apply it to all of life, gathering essentially for instruction and for discipleship. And then last week, we finally got to what I think it's fair to say is the real heart of the matter, which is worship itself. What are we doing when we worship? What is the purpose of worship? How does worship work? We did not exhaustively look at worship last week, of course. I'm not sure that anyone could ever exhaust what can be learned about worship. But we did look at the heart of the matter. We got to the heart of the heart, as it were. The central principle, the key idea on which all of worship hangs, which is that its end, its goal, its purpose, its telos, is communion with God. 
We are invited into God's house for fellowship around his table. And despite how we tend to think about worship today versus back then in Israel, there is no sharp disconnect between the temple worship before Christ and the Lord's Day worship after his ascension. Our New Testament worship is not fundamentally different, we saw, to Old Testament worship. On the contrary, our Lord's Day worship is actually a fulfillment and a completion, a much fuller substance of the shadow of ancient temple worship. They offered physical sacrifices and we offer spiritual sacrifices. They had a physical temple. We are the spiritual temple. The model on which Israel's worship was based is, in fact, our worship. Let me say that again. The model on which Israel's worship was based is our worship. See what God says to Moses in Exodus 25, looking at verse 9. He says, According to all that I show thee, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furniture thereof, even so shall ye make it. And he repeats this in verse 40, which we did not read up to for the sake of time. He says in verse 40, And see that thou make them after their pattern, which hath been showed thee in the mountain. See that thou make them after their pattern, which hath been showed thee. And again in chapters 26 and chapter 27, and then Numbers 8, and then in Acts 7.44, Scripture reiterates for us that Moses created everything in the tabernacle, which, remember, was the portable temple. It was the model for the temple later. He created all of these things according to the pattern which he saw when he was with God on Mount Sinai. And in the same way, in First Chronicles 28, David tells us, All this have I been made to understand in writing from the hand of Yahweh, even all the works of this pattern. Now, time would fail us to read every place in Scripture that explains these truths or ties together every aspect of Israel's worship under this principle, but Hebrews 8 summarizes for us very aptly when it says that the priests of the Old Covenant serve that which is a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, even as Moses is warned of God when he is about to make the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou shalt make all things according to the pattern that was showed thee in the mount. That's Hebrews 8, 5. This really is what is so significant about Hebrews 12, telling us that we have not come to a physical mountain with fire and smoke, but to the heavenly Mount Zion. The whole point of Hebrews is to exhort recent Jewish converts not to be tempted to return to the ornate worship of Judaism that they they were so familiar with at the temple that seemed so impressive compared to the worship that they were doing and wasn't getting them persecuted, more to the point. They were not to return to this because in Christ and in Christian worship, which seems so much less interesting, they have the very substance of which all that, all that Jewish fancy worship was just a model. They have the reality after which the whole religious expression of Israel was patterned. Just as the church is the true Israel and we are the true temple, so Christian worship is the true sacrifice and true and complete communion with God. 
It seems different from the worship of Israel only because so much of it has moved. Not because it is unlike the worship of Israel, but because it has moved. What do I mean? I mean, the problem is not that the worship is really different. It is that the worship now happens in a way that we cannot physically observe. It no longer happens here on earth as a mere shadow through physical elements. It largely happens in reality now in heaven itself through spiritual elements, which, of course, we cannot perceive. But there is still a holy, holy place in which God sits on his throne on this mercy seat with cherubs standing by. There is still a sin offering that enables us to draw near, and not merely to draw into the outer court, but to come into the Holy of Holies, that is, the once-for-all offering of Jesus himself. There are still faithful believers who draw near, only now they are not symbolically cut up in the form of an animal in order to rise up to God in smoke, but they rise up in the Spirit, being cut up themselves by the Word of God that pierces to the division of joint and marrow and shapes us into creatures fit, fit for God's presence. And most importantly, there is still a meal with God, or there should be, which we can indeed perceive because it still happens with physical elements in anticipation of the time when it shall be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. The meal is the pinnacle of worship, but it is not the only thing going on. I don't want you to think after last week that worship is nothing but a meal, or to think that there is no worship without the meal. Many churches do not do the Lord's Supper more than four or maybe 12 times per year. Are all of their other Sundays not worship at all? No, I think they are. Although I, I also think they are an, an impoverished and incomplete kind. Worship involves other things than table fellowship. Just as eating is not the only thing that goes on when we visit each other for dinner, for instance. One of the central elements of hospitality is not just food, but conversation. This is evident even in the origin of the word conversation itself. Did you know that in the 14th century, conversation meant to keep company with? It was from the Latin converso, meaning to interact or pass time with someone. Conversation is really integral to communion, just as eating is. And of course, conversation does not require food, although the two do naturally go together. It is hard to imagine going to someone's house and then eating in silence. That would be a very inhospitable dinner. But it is also hard to imagine going to someone's house and having great conversation without being offered anything to eat at all. And this is maybe a little bit less true in New Zealand society. In New Zealand society, we would probably still feel like we should offer tea or coffee at least. But uh, I would argue that this is only because we have abandoned the practice of table fellowship as a staple of worship, as the end of worship. You see, worship sets the pattern for all of life, which is something that we will look at again another time. So when we get it wrong, it has consequences for our entire culture. But it was certainly true in the culture that produced the Bible that hospitality and food were essentially synonymous. You can read any account of people taking strangers into their house in the Bible and you will discover that food, and not just tea and coffee, but a meal, a proper meal, they go and kill the fatted calf, they put together six measures of flour, all these kinds of things. A meal is integral to communion and conversation. Anyone reading the scriptures when they were first written would have taken for granted that when someone came to your house, you would feed them. But of course, you do not just feed them. 
the food and the conversation go together. And in the same way, when God summons us into his house, he engages us in conversation. And even if you will not find table fellowship at every worship service around New Zealand this morning, you will find in the faithful churches conversation with God. We are doing that right now. We read God's word and we engage in conversation with it, learning what it means. He speaks to us and we speak back. It is not quite like the conversation that we have with each other, is it? We have to adjust our analogy to how great God is compared to us, to how unworthy we are to be in his presence, and to how we must be reshaped by him in order to be able to have fellowship with him at all. The conversation is of a different kind for much of our worship than it is when we visit someone for dinner. When I go to Jared's house, he does not have to instruct me in his ways so that I might be conformed to his image and thus made into a more suitable dinner guest. Nor do I have to be purified for entering into his presence. You know, I, I wipe my feet on the doormat and I take off my dirty boots so I don't traipse mud into his living room, but I don't have to circumcise my heart and... Uh, clean myself lest I traipse the filth of sin into his holy presence. I don't have to have him wash me or clothe me in his righteousness. To use the analogy that Jesus uses in Matthew 22, I do not have to put on special clothes just to visit. Look at verses 11 to 14. When the king came in to behold the guests, he saw there a man who had not a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and cast him into the outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And this draws our attention to another way in which worship is unlike our regular fellowship with other people, especially in New Zealand, which is a very casual and I'd say even ritual-averse culture. The communion with God in worship is much more heavily regulated, much more weighty, carries a great deal more import, and is more ritualized than the casual way in which we do dinner together. And this is what I want to focus our attention on today. Now that we understand what worship is, what the very heart of it is about, we need to also see, it is the utmost importance that we see, that it is not merely a meal with God in the sense that we tend to think of a meal. It is much more heavily regulated and ritualized. Being casual is fine in the right context, but being casual with God is not the right context. Our fellowship with him in worship is modeled on the great marriage supper of the Lamb. It anticipates that great feast. And so naturally, there are stricter rules and formalities and rituals, just as there are at our own wedding receptions compared to our regular meals and dinners and lunches. Moreover, worship is not a meeting of equals. Our fellowship with God is modeled on our status as children coming to their father rather than a meeting of equals, which is what most table fellowship that we experience is like. Now, Scripture does not always want us to imagine our status as children of God in terms of people like you know, Morris or Chase or Drew or Lockie. 
Often when it speaks of us as sons, it means grown sons, and that is important as we'll see at other times, but there is an appropriate image in seeing ourselves as small children when we come to God's table inasmuch as we are weak and inferior compared to our weak and inferior compared to our Father in heaven. The saints in glory who surround us right now invisibly are like our older brothers. They are grown sons and the angels are their older brothers still but we are like tiny and dare I say naughty children who must be trained to follow the rules at the table closely we cannot do whatever we want even though we very much want to we want to climb around and misbehave so when we come to our father's house it is absolutely necessary that we follow his rules and that we be disciplined to follow his rules. If you were summoned to appear before the king at Buckingham Palace, I am confident that you or any one of us would feel a little bit nervous about how to behave. What to say, what to wear, what to do, and especially what not to do. And you can bet that regardless of what you think about King Charles, and God knows he does not appear to be the kind of king we should desire, you would spend a lot of time carefully preparing for your visit so that you didn't do the wrong thing. Now, how much more should we fear to transgress the rules in the house of God himself? Even in a meeting of equals, you might stress about rules. You know, suppose you're visiting Christians from Ethiopia that you've never met. You might well fret to yourself or your, might, your wife might well fret to you. Did they say to bring anything? Is there anything that we need to do? Do we have to wear something specific? I hope they don't have any customs that we don't know about, or I hope we don't say the wrong thing. I hope they don't expect us to bring something we don't know about. And are these not good and valid concerns to avoid offense and ensure that true fellowship, true communion takes place? No, of course they are. It is right to be concerned about such things. Yet, when it comes to answering the summons of God to meet with him in his house and eat with him, how often do we feel such concerns? We're commanded to come to the Lord of the universe, who is not merely the sovereign ruler of the skies, the king of kings, but also completely other. If you can think of anything more foreign, you are mistaken. More utterly holy, completely and infinitely different to us. And we're just like, okay, it'll be fine. We'll just do whatever. We come assuming that God will accept us no matter what we do and no matter how we behave. It doesn't even occur to us to ask if there are any rules to follow. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. We ought not to be so presumptuous. Nab, Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, this is Leviticus 10, took each one of them his censer and put fire therein and laid incense thereon and offered strange fire before Yahweh, which he had not commanded them. And there came forth fire from before Yahweh and devoured them, and they died before Yahweh. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is what Yahweh spoke, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Nadab and Abihu approached God presumptuously and died. Examples, of course, can be multiplied. 
from the golden calves that Israel worshipped in the wilderness, and 3,000 died to the golden calves that Jeroboam set up in Dan and Bethel that caused Israel to sin and be killed by the sword and famine and carried off into captivity to Uzzah, who we read about earlier, who was struck down for his irreverence in laying hands on the Ark of the Covenant just to steady it. Why was he and those with him, why were they not carrying the Ark as it was supposed to be carried using the poles according to the instructions that we read in Exodus 25? This presumption is not limited to the Old Testament. The Corinthians partook of the Lord's Supper unworthily and became sick and even died. Thankfully, the punishment is not always death. Saul felt compelled to offer the ascension offering at Gilgal, and he had the kingdom taken away from him. He was not killed. Uzziah offered unauthorized incense on the altar, but unlike Abihu and Nadab, he was struck with leprosy rather than fire. You don't always die. But the fact that there are so many of these examples in Scripture shows us how the instinct to worship God as we see fit is deeply embedded into the wicked heart of man. We recognize it in the scriptures, and we see how bad it is. We're like, oh, no, they shouldn't have done that. And yet we do not recognize it in ourselves or in our own culture because it is so normal to us, so familiar, so routine, that we can no longer see it. And often, of course, it is disguised as piety, Mark 7, Jesus said unto them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as their doctrines the precepts of men. Ye leave the commandment of God and hold fast the tradition of men. And he said unto them, Full well do ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your tradition. And this is just referring to the people who have God's law and should know better. We know the kind of idolatry and blasphemy that pagans get up to. And yet even the pagans are sometimes more respectful, more circumspect, more careful to pay homage to God, even the God that they do not know, than many Christians are today. Look at Acts 17. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Ye men of Athens, in all things I perceive that you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore ye worship in ignorance, this I set forth unto you. And there is a certain uh, comical mocking that is happening here because the word for religious also means superstitious. Paul is gently drawing attention to their religious weakness, but at the same time, there is a pathos to this passage, a kind of sadness or poignancy. Paul is sympathizing with them because he shows with sympathy to these lost souls who this unknown God is. He reveals to them the God which they nonetheless dared not exclude from their worship, even though they did not know him. They tried to worship him as best they knew, feeling after him, as Paul says in verse 27, as men who grope in the dark. Fortunately, we do do not need to be like such people, for we have God's ways revealed to us through his scriptures, and we have his law to guide our worship. Yet greater knowledge also incurs heavier judgment. One commentator makes the interesting observation about Uzzah being struck dead when he touched the ark. He says, quote, It deserves consideration that those heathen had not been killed for handling the ark, that is, the Philistines who had previously stolen it, 
while for doing the same thing, God's people, who should have known better, were taught an awful lesson. End quote. Now, is this less true today? I do not believe so. Judgment begins in the house of God, we are told in the New Testament. In every time, the church has been plagued by what Paul in Colossians 2.23 calls will worship. We enter into the Holy of Holies, the place in which the ark, that is Jesus himself, resides in whatever way we please. We are no different than every previous generation in our desire to worship as we will and no different in our need for correction. And so in every time, God raises up those whose zeal is to reform the worship of his church. Charles Spurgeon was such a man, and he made no more friends in his day than I expect to make in ours. Listen to what he said in his sermon, The Lesson of Uzzah. He said, quote, all the way through this incident, we see that there was no taking heed to the commands of God and to the rules which he had laid down. The people brought will worship to God instead of that which he had ordained. What do I mean by will worship? I mean any kind of worship which is not prescribed in God's own word. Inasmuch, therefore, as these people did not show any reverence for God by consulting his record of the rules which he had laid down for their guidance, seeming to think that whatever pleased them must please him, whatever kind of worship they chose to make up would be quite sufficient for the Lord God of Israel. Therefore, it ended in failure. How I wish that all religious denominations would bring their ordinances and forms of worship to the supreme test of the New Testament. But alas, they know that so much would have to be put away that is now delightful to the flesh, and that I fear me we shall be long before we bring all to worship God after his own order. End quote. Now the Westminster Confession of Faith which is the doctrinal standard that we use at Redwood, speaks to this issue directly. It says in section 21 of religious worship in the Sabbath day, the very first thing it says is, the light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath worship and sovereignty, lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshipping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men, or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. This itself is just an application and expansion of the second commandment. You guys remember the second commandment? Thou shalt not make unto thee a graven image, nor any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them, nor serve them. For I, Yahweh thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the sons, upon the third and the fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing loving kindness, the Hebrew word is chesed, is loyal love, covenant love, unto thousands of them, that love me and keep my commandments. Kelvin comments on this passage very astutely. Although Moses only speaks of idolatry, yet there is no doubt that by synecdoche, synecdoche is a part that stands in for the whole, by synecdoche, as in all the rest of the law, he condemns all fictitious services which men in their ingenuity have invented. And in another place, he goes on to say, therefore, if we would have him to approve our worship, 
This rule, which he everywhere enforces with the utmost strictness, must be carefully observed. For there is a twofold reason why the Lord, in condemning and prohibiting all fictitious worship, requires us to give obedience only to his own voice. First, it tends greatly to establish his authority, that we do not follow our own pleasure, but depend entirely on his sovereignty. And secondly, such is our folly that when we are left at liberty, all we are able to do is go astray. And then when once we have turned aside from the right path, there is no end to our wanderings until we have buried under a multitude of superstitions. Until we are buried under a multitude of superstitions. Justly, therefore, does the Lord, in order to assert his full right of dominion, strictly enjoin what he wishes us to do, and at once reject all human devices which are at variance with his command. And justly, too, does he in express terms define our limits that we may not, by fabricating perverse modes of worship, provoke his anger against us. It's in the necessity of reforming the church. What we're talking about now is called the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship. It means simply that scripture regulates our worship. It is our only rule for faith and practice, as the Westminster says again. The rule by which we pattern everything that we do in worship. And also on the negative side, the rule by which we pattern everything that we do not do in worship. If there is a practice in worship that we are doing and we cannot find warrant for it in Scripture, and I do not mean that Scripture gives a, an explicit command for it, but that there is no pattern for it in Scripture. We saw the importance of patterns in the passages that we read. If there is such a practice, then we ought to stop doing it. And if Scripture patterns for us something about worship that we are not doing, we ought to start doing it, or at least we ought to start asking how we can apply it to our circumstances. Because, of course, not all the patterns that Scripture gives are directly transferable. When we find them in the Old Testament, we have to work out how they are applied spiritually. But they are all written for our instruction, and we must reflect carefully on what they are teaching us and how to implement these teachings under New Testament worship. Let me put this another way to tie it back to everything that we've already learned about worship. What we've seen is that Old Covenant worship was modeled after the heavenly reality, and that heavenly reality is the very thing in which we, under the New Covenant, participate. In other words, the Old Covenant worship actually models our worship, if we are worshiping correctly. So they should look the same once we make the necessary adjustments for the spiritual fulfillments. And this is why there is so little direct instruction about worship in the New Testament. There is no need for it because God has already established the patterns in the Old Testament. The New Testament is simply about applying them to heavenly worship without the need for the types and the shadows. It's about applying it in a way that allows us to enter into heaven itself through the sacrifice of Christ. And this was taken for granted in the church throughout history until relatively recent times when we started to get very strange ideas about spontaneity and authenticity and freedom and so forth, which obviously have nothing to do with what Scripture itself has to say. So because of this, 
in the coming weeks after Christmas, I want to examine the pattern of worship which is laid down by Scripture, both in the shadowy model of the Old Covenant and, of course, in the substance and fulfillment under the New Covenant. And I want to ask what it teaches us about how we here at Redwood should worship. I want to take the theory that we have learned and apply it directly to our own church. I want to be extremely practical. I want to preach probably in three parts, essentially on the theme of how should we worship? What should we do? How should we act? What should we say? What should we wear? And how should we do the Lord's Supper? These are actually the three major questions that I want to cover. If you have more, I'll cover them too. But the three that I have planned are, firstly, what should we be saying in worship, which will cover our liturgy? Secondly, what should we be wearing in worship, which will cover, well, that which covers us? And thirdly, how should we be coming to the table in worship? And this last one is obviously especially pertinent because we want to be doing this and we need to answer it in order to be able to actually do it. And so I hope that we can start to do that by the end of January. Now, next week it is Christmas. And Jared has asked me to preach on the connection between Christmas and post-millennialism. You might say it's a sermon on Christmas and the hope of the gospel. So you can expect to sing many carols about Jesus and his reign and the effects thereof. And we'll pick up studying worship after that.